0: Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Urien Timmer, Director of Global Macro, is back with us today to provide his macro and markets update. After strong equity market rallies in the last two months, we've seen some red this week. Will recent news surrounding slowing growth and a key interest rate cut in China cause any lasting implications in North American markets? More importantly, perhaps will it impact how the Fed handles their interest rate moves in September? Urien breaks down this week's hot topics and more alongside host Pamela Ritchie. Per usual, Urien will be sharing his charts, so please head to at on Twitter to follow along. This podcast was recorded on August 15th, 2022. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments.
1: Joining me today to break down some of the latest market action is Fidelity's Director of Global Macro, Yurian Timmer. We've missed you, it's great to see you. Welcome back.
2: Yes, good morning. It's been a couple of weeks, good to be back.
1: We're thrilled to have you back. So there's a there's a been an unbelievable rally that's been going on, and we we do see that uh, turning the other way for for a few different reasons. The the title of your report is Road to Balance, which I'm kind of fascinated, like because the last month has not looked like balance. It's looked like um, I don't know what it's like. What does it look like the last month to you?
2: Well, the last couple of years, of course, everything has been very unbalanced, right? We had this pandemic coming out of nowhere. Um, We had a complete shutdown of the global economy, then uh, unprecedented fiscal and monetary policy stimulus, then a reopening, and then all the supply chain bottlenecks that we, of course, are familiar with, Um, then the Fed trying to reverse policy, the fiscal side, reversing policy at least on a flow basis by not doing more of the same. And then, of course, we had a war between Russia and the Ukraine, and we have a zero-COVID lockdown policy in China, which continues. And we have, obviously, rampant inflation that has prompted the Fed to try to get um, everything back into sync. And so, to me, the road to balance is, um, is about trying to restore some sense of order um, and to kind of right the, the, the ship um, and to get back to sort of be- where we were before the pandemic, basically. So it's been a very unusual couple of years. And, you know, we all got used to what was called the great moderation, right, the last 10 or 20 years, where we just had not only low inflation, but we had very low volatility of inflation. Um, and we had uh, a rally in bonds, or in other words, decline in, a structural decline in yields, a structural rise in equities, and everything was sort of Goldilocks, and uh you know goldilocks has has left the building, and I think we would all like Goldilocks to return and so that I think is the road to balance. Um, I also struck it as a, as a personal note because you know I just last weekend um, rode in my twenty fourth annual pan mass challenge, which is a hundred and sixty uh two mile bike ride uh um in uh, as a fundraiser for cancer research. Congratulations.
1: It a that is and Thank it wasn't uh, a cool, crisp type of weather it,
2: either. It was, it was brutally hot. I think it was in the upper 90s with a lot of humidity. Uh, certainly the hottest ride I've done of the 24, but I wrote with my daughter her fourth ride. So, but anyway, but that, you know, that's kind of one way to strike balance in, in, in kind of what otherwise for all of us is a fairly left brain. Oriented world, uh, and then of course, starting in a week or two, I'm going to be at Burning Man, which is another attempt to strike balance uh, again in sort of you know getting everything, get, getting the whole work-life balance in in place. And so, the, the road to balance or the return to balance uh, speaks to the markets as well. We see this in the stock market where. 17% off the lows. We've retraced half of the decline. And of course, the question on everyone's minds um, uh, is, is this a bear market rally or a new bull market?
1: So should we begin there? Should we take a look at the technicals? You have amazing charts that you yeah. brought with us. I mean, how, yeah. does, how do the technicals look at that question?
0: The first chart we'll look at today is Urien's August 15th tweet, market breadth. This will be followed by technicals, which is also the next tweet.
2: Actually, it's funny on on Twitter, someone called me uh, the Picasso of charts, and so maybe this chart actually is is a good example of that. It, this is this is a daily chart going back a hundred years, showing the percentage of stocks in the S and P five hundred above their fifty day moving average. And just to give you uh, kind of a, a perspective, you know, obviously this thing goes back and forth all the time, but we were near zero. Uh, Six weeks ago, we were at two percent, and now we're actually at ninety-two percent. So a pretty stunning reversal. And if we look at this in another way, in the next slide, we can see uh, just a, a little bit of a close-up of that. Um, and so, you know, it's an impressive uh, amount of breath. We call that market breath, the number of stocks going up and down. And so the question is, you know, that that we call that a breath thrust, um, and. Oftentimes that can be a sign of a new bull market, but unfortunately, uh, oftentimes it can also just be a bear market rally because bear market rallies actually tend to be stronger and faster than a lot of new bull markets because bull markets start when the market has gotten so oversold that nobody really believes in it anymore. And it takes a while to build that base. Uh, So so, uh, just to give you an example of that...
0: Next up, bull market analogs price, and then bear market rallies, tweeted back to back on August 15th.
2: I've lined up all cyclical bull markets. Um, those are all the gray lines going back 100 years and superimposed the current cycle. And again, we don't know if this is a new bull market. Uh, I'm not here to tell you that it is. I do think that the bottom is likely in, but that doesn't mean we we have a catalyst in place for a new bull market. But if you look at this chart, you can see that 17% off the low is kind of neither here nor there in relation to what other bull markets before us have done. And to make matters even more uh, murky, if we go to the next slide, here I show all bear market rallies going back 100 years. So primarily these are rallies during the 1929 to 1932 period, which of course was an extreme period, 86% decline in the Dow Jones lasting several years. So there were many uh, bear market rallies during that period. Then we have some during the the late 30s, the 40s, which is a relevant period as we've often discussed. And then the dot-com bubble burst in early 2000, 2001, 2002. And then of course the financial crisis in 08. And again, here it's hard to draw any kind of conclusion about whether this is a new bull market or a bear market rally. So that the internals of the market, unfortunately don't give us a lot of clues. um, And we have to sort of build a thesis on what we think is going to happen on the basis of earnings growth or the economy at large and what we think will happen to interest rates and monetary policy. And that is basically what it all comes down to. And the, the only thing that I think we can really draw a clue from Um, at least perhaps in the coming few weeks, is the retracement. When you look at all bear market rallies um, and the amount of the decline that is being retraced, and right now we have retraced 53% of the decline, which is very impressive, we rarely exceed that level. Basically, a bear market rally does not go beyond a 50% retracement. And And I remember us talking about this two years ago after the lows in march of 2020 that once the market regained more than half of its of its loss um, you know historically you really have no choice but to conclude that a new bull market is in place and that was not the only thing we looked at we looked at many many factors of course but but so if we start if we keep retracing more of this decline uh it it's going to probably be a new bull market at least on the basis of historical uh, patterns
1: fascinating so so the next few weeks are critical though, right? I mean, is that, is that fair? This is, is, where we go from. Okay. So today we got a yeah. lot of bad news yeah. out of China and, and, you know, that could well be um, messing with markets. There's, there's, always you know, was a risk of contagion, but there's, but there's also the question mark of, was that just it? We just saw, you know, the rally go. And now maybe for other reasons, technical reasons. That's nice.
2: Yeah. So we, we are definitely at a fork in the road. And I think it's going to be an actionable one actually, because we are now, overbought technically, as I showed with that percentage of stocks above their moving average, and we've retraced half of the decline, which is about as much as you tend to retrace in a bear market rally. So if anyone is on this call and they are absolutely convinced that the market's going down from a a trade location point of view, essentially you're, you're being handed a gift. And again, I'm not saying the market's going down or that anyone should be Selling. But if that's if that's your, your investment thesis, uh, this overbought condition and this kind of maximum retracement would would offer, um, you know, an opportunity to kind of either, you know, sell strength if you didn't sell before or, or set up shorts or something like that. And And it's interesting when we think about the Fed.
0: Now we'll take a look at the Fed and the market tweeted on August 12th.
2: You know, the market believes that the Fed is going to raise rates another hundred basis points over the next six months and then cut rates uh, over the the following year or two. So that orange line is the forward curve. And interestingly enough, that forward curve did not change much after the very friendly CPI report that we had okay, last week. I wanted
1: to ask you about. OK, yeah. good, good. So, yeah, so
2: so, so the, the peak for this curve was a few months ago at 4% when we got that first really bad cpi i mean they've been all been bad for the whole year but where we got that one where people were expecting the cpi to roll over and it actually went to a new cycle high at 8.6 percent that that was the that was the peak for the bond yields three and a half percent so that was in june i think it was and that was the peak for the forward curve and we've come down a little bit we're at 365 now as the terminal value for the for this cycle but We haven't come down a lot. And the reason I mention this is if we go to slide 27.
0: And for us, that is financial conditions and the Fed last tweeted on July 27th.
2: What we can see is that since the stock market bottomed in June and since bond yields peaked around the same time at three and a half percent, this top line here shows financial conditions. And when the line goes up, it means financial conditions are tightening. And when it goes down, they're loosening. And so what's happening is that the Fed still has a hundred, still has a lot of wood to chop, right? We're, we're at two and three eighths, the Fed's going to go presumably to three and a half, so that's another hundred basis points. Um, and uh, but yet financial conditions are now loosening. And you know, if I was the Fed, I would be a little bit um, <laughs> you know perturbed by this because the whole point of tightening policy is to tighten policy and to tighten financial conditions. And so that they're very tight- loose. Yeah, Yeah. so to be tightening policy while the markets are easing on your behalf, you know, because rates are falling, credit spreads are narrowing, stocks are rallying, even the dollars coming down, these are all components of financial conditions. Um, It wouldn't shock me that the Fed will start to kind of try to beat the markets down with their words, you know, to jawbone the markets and saying, hey, everyone, you're declaring victory a little bit too soon. And if that happens, that that's going to be a problem for this rally.
0: Let's take a look at valuation and the two year tweeted on August 17th.
2: As we've talked about many times uh, this year, uh, a very good guide for this market cycle has been the two year treasury yield. Uh, We look, of course, at long rates. Those are that's an important input into the discounted cash flow model. But the two year yield is a very good proxy for the Fed cycle because the two year yield is essentially essentially represents that forward curve that I showed in the previous chart or two charts ago. And so the two-year yield turned upside down, which I've done here, and I've expressed it as a PE. So just by doing a, a simple regression, uh, the two-year yield is near the, the highs of the cycle and expressed as a PE. It's near the low of the cycle, even though the PE itself, the forward PE, which is the gray line, has gone from 15 times expected earnings to 18 times just during this rally. So but because earnings growth, earnings growth has held up better so far than expected. I think for the second quarter earnings season, everyone was kind of waiting for the next shoe to drop and it, it didn't drop. Right. So earnings right. held in pretty well. Uh, but still earnings growth is slowing. Margins are coming down. And therefore, any rally in the S&P is going to be based on a rising PE multiple, as you can see in this chart. And that creates a disconnect between where the Fed cycle is and where the market is. And and so, you know, if the Fed starts to really jawbone the markets into saying, "Look, listen, people, you're way too early on on sounding the the, the um, you know the all clear here," then I would imagine that it's the valuation side that's will come under pressure. And with earnings growth holding in, but certainly not accelerating in any way, uh, it's hard to see the market build on the strength that it has uh, achieved so far.
1: There's been regulation, there's been new, some new moves on, on the buybacks front, um, in terms of taxes, how this is potentially going to affect the way corporations manage their, their allocations, their capital allocations. So how, how do you think that might affect, if at all? Uh, share prices
2: so what we have of course is slowing earnings growth still positive um, but x energy which is only a small sector uh, earnings growth for 2022 for the calendar year is expected to be three percent and that number has been coming down so there's no question that we are in a slowing earnings growth environment which can be okay for the market it's better than obviously a contracting earnings growth environment it's the difference between a soft landing and a hard landing but you know we don't have that tailwind of strong accelerating earnings growth anymore. And on top of that, uh, the operating margin, the profit margin in the S and P is coming down. It was at 13.7 in January. It's at 13.1 and falling now. So you have you know okay fundamentals, but they are they're getting less okay instead of getting more okay. And then on top of that, we now have this announcement in this tax uh, in this in this fiscal bill that um, is very likely to to, to be signed by the president because both houses of Congress are are in approval of it, that's going to uh, levy a 1% tax on share buybacks. And so share buybacks are an important story. I think it's a piece of financial engineering that I think is often underappreciated in terms of what it has contributed to the secular bull market story. And as you know, I've been a secular bull for almost 10 years. Uh, and part of that has been you know, declining interest rates, uh, rising profit margins, demographics, but also financial engineering. Because what we see in the US, earnings is are $218 a share, uh, buybacks are $110 a share, and dividends are $65 a share. When you add up the dividends and the buybacks, you get what we call the payout. And what we see is that the payout ratio So the amount of earnings paid uh, returned to shareholders, either directly as dividends or indirectly as buybacks, uh, is 81%. And that's about the historical average uh, going back a couple of decades. Um, And if that somehow gets uh, diminished because companies are not going to buy back as many shares because they don't want to pay a 1% tax, that's going to have an impact on valuation because when we look at the discounted cash flow model and I actually, I'm actually going to do some work on this over the weekend, um, the payout ratio matters a lot. And in the U.S., the payout ratio is much higher than for instance, Europe and Japan and really the rest of the world. Uh, the rest of the world is probably around 50 to 60%. The U.S. is 80%. That makes a big difference in how much investors are willing to pay for each dollar of earnings. So it feeds right into the valuation question. So. We don't know what the effects are going to be. Maybe instead of buybacks, companies will just pay these extra earnings back as a special dividend or something, and in which case it's not going to make any difference. But it's certainly an important thing to keep an eye on.
1: That's interesting. I mean, you spoke of that a year and a half ago, just as we saw markets take off out of the pandemic and that that may be a way that some of that is recouped sort of from the government coffers side of things after yep. the care Act. So fascinating. Um, I wonder, I just wanna, I wonder if you did this one already, the anatomy of a correction. Did we do that slide already? This is sort of taking a look at the other bear markets, but then ultimately getting us to the post-war comparison to right now. Um, a couple of oh, these, which you've done yeah. before, the 1940s COVID yes. was like a war to an extent in terms of the effect in the
2: markets. Absolutely, so we can pull up slide 12.
0: Which, for us, is 2022 versus 1946, tweeted on August 17th.
2: Um, so yeah, you know, we we have gone. We started this conversation in March of 2020, yeah. and back then, uh, I was using the analog of the early 40s, right? So 1942 was the year where the U.S. Um, kind of mobilized for to uh, join World War II. And that mobilization meant, of course, you know, redirecting uh, people in, in, you know, labor, capital, uh, you know, women went to work you know, to, to, to help mobilize uh, the, the economy. We had a massive increase in debt, and that increase in debt was funded or monetized by the Fed, uh, which, which put in place yield caps and did a lot of QE. Uh, the Fed increased its balance sheet tenfold during the 1940s. So a couple of years ago, that was kind of a primary um, analog, uh, and it was a good one because that that was a, that 1942 bottom was was a kind of a similar type of bottom. We've now moved on towards the second half of the 1940s. You know, analogs never fit perfectly. You have to kind of pick pick the moments that are most um, uh, are most relevant. Uh, so we had this big rally from 42 to 46. We, of course, we had World War II. We had lots of inflation. Then the war ended and all these, you know, this labor went back into the economy, but the economy, which had been geared to essentially mobilize for the war, wasn't ready to now mobilize for all these GIs to come back into the economy. So that's a very good parallel to the supply chain disruptions we saw during COVID, right? So, I mean, there really are, I mean, obviously a world war and COVID are not the same thing, but there are definitely parallels uh, to that. And so, that was a very disruptive period in 1946, where inflation was a problem. The, the stock market had a 26% decline, um, and um, and then you know the Fed was trying to raise rates, but the Fed was still kind of under the thumb of the Treasury, um, and so there was only so much that the Fed could do. So anyway, there are definitely parallels here as the U.S. well as the global economy tries to reopen and tries to resolve these supply chain bottlenecks. Um, and so it's interesting that that period in 1946, really spanning all the way to 49, which is the analog here in the in the yellow line, uh, the decline was only 26%, which is very similar to the 25% decline we've seen right. the first half of this year. Um, But, you know, earnings never skipped a beat, and that's because we had a lot of inflation, right? Earnings are a nominal concept because a company sells into the nominal economy, and so earnings are not skipping a beat right now. Earnings growth is slowing, but they're still holding up, and inflation clearly is going to play a role in that. Uh, So the second half of the 40s was all about valuation. The P.E. ratio, which was at 22 at the top in 1946. Eventually by 1949, was at five? And I'm not predicting that the PE is gonna to go to five, we're in a different world, but it just goes to show that when you have periods of inflation, um, it's the valuation that is moving the needle more so than the earnings. And that's why I pay so much attention to valuation now at, per that chart, uh, comparing the PE to the two-year yield.
1: That's, it's fascinating. And I remember you said, you know even, even in June, on a P.E. basis, things hadn't gotten cheap, cheap. I mean, they were lower, but they weren't cheap, cheap. Um there's right. so many we, we
2: many went companies. down to fair value, but we never yeah. went through it. And that's why, as we discussed back then, even though you could make the case that the bottom was in, we never got to that really juicy kind of opportunity where everyone Sold because they were expecting a recession that then did not happen. Right? That that's how you get bottoms. Uh, so if the P had gone to thirteen when it should have been at sixteen, then you have an opportunity. But we we went down to fifteen and it should have gone down to fifteen and now it's at eighteen. And so there was never that that opportunity set. So interesting.
1: Uh, Puzzle questions rolling in, and many of them have to do ultimately with the rally that we've just seen that you're talking about, and also the idea of just where inflation kind of goes from here. So one of the questions on that is, you know, through the coming winter, do you expect to see, you know, energy supply issues and and therefore inflation based on that? Like, does it come back is sort of the question.
2: I think on the energy front, it's, uh, so on on many of the uh, inflation pieces, you know, copper, other commodities, I think, you know, those are very sensitive to demand and clearly there is some demand destruction. I mean, the economy has slowed and, and you know, you could argue we're in a technical recession based on two quarters of negative GDP growth, although we are well short of what would be traditionally considered a recession as defined by the NBER.
0: We'll now take a look at travel and COVID, which at the time of recording was last tweeted on July 7th, but a more recent tweet may be now posted.
2: You know, I always come back to this slide because you know, people are convinced the US is in a recession. Um, and the US is seventy percent consumer spending, right? The US economy. And the TSA checkpoints uh are are slightly down from the high, but they're still pretty up there at about two point four million. And if travel is one of the most discretionary forms of consumer spending and it's holding up this well, it's really hard, it's really a a stretch for me to conclude that the US economy, which is largely consumer-based, is in a recession. So maybe a technical recession, but that's about it. Uh, So many, many commodities, uh, I think, have peaked for that reason, but energy and natural gas, for instance, are of course, are somewhat unique because geopolitics play a large role, and, and not just geopolitics, but domestic policies as well. We think about pipelines and things like that. Um, so I think that will probably prove to be sticky. And of course the real estate market or the home, you know, the, the, uh, the, the, price of, of renting a home, especially in the U S uh, remains a very sticky piece of inflation as well. And, you know, I just wanted to come back to kind of the valuation as an anchor, uh, for this cycle, whereas in other cycles, valuations might mean less and it's more about earnings. Let's look at
0: 1994 and 2022. Tweeted on August 18th.
2: You know, I come back to the 1994 cycle, which is another very relevant analog. That was the Greenspan cycle where Alan Greenspan raised rates out of nowhere by 300 basis points. You look on the left hand side again, it's that two year yield in the purple against the P.E. ratio. You know, that that was a very good guide at the time. And if you look carefully, you can see that every any time that the PE ratio rallied, meaning the market rallied only on the basis of valuation, uh, while that purple line kept going down. Uh, that rally ended up not working. Um, oh. And so you look, compare that to the right-hand side, where you have this clear, clearly growing gap between where the PE is and where it should be. Uh, and again, it, it makes it makes me not want to chase this rally too much, even if the bottom is in uh, after all.
1: Okay, actually, you just answered a couple of questions that are that are in there. Okay, amazing. Here's a question on on renewables, and I would like to quickly get a question on Bitcoin after this, if we can. So, renewables uh, is part of the rising cost of of the energy of energy related to the transition to renewables, and is it similar um, to the OPEC oil price shock of the 1970s?
2: Oh, that's a great question. I mean, there are definitely some similarities to the OPEC shock uh, in that. That was a completely a supply shock, of course. And in a way, the the war between Russia and the Ukraine is completely a supply shock, right? So demand will play a role. I mean, we are going to have some demand destruction, certainly if we go into a traditional recession, which I'm not seeing yet. But if we did, you know, uh, there's an old saying that, uh, you know, the best cure for high prices is high prices. So uh, but the supply um Aspect certainly is playing a large role geopolitically speaking. Uh, you know, renewables. I, you know, that's that that is a very strong trend that will continue, and um, and I think certainly the current administration um, will you know will continue to push for that, um, which actually uh, compounds the problem for fossil fuels, right? Because there are uh, oil fields in the U.S. that are considered off limits for drilling that weren't off limits in the previous administration, right? So so it, it cuts both ways. Uh, but we do have a midterm election coming up in, in only a few months. And chances are that we will have a complete grid block from November for the next two years because the House and possibly the Senate are likely to flip to the Republicans. And then we will have a lame duck type of, of presidency. So chances are that very little will get done either towards ESG ESG, or against fossil fuels, Uh, not ESG, but renewables in general.
1: Yeah. Okay. And
2: just quickly,
1: speaking of um, seasons and and various things, uh, is the crypto winter over?
2: Um, My hunch is that it is.
0: Let's now reference Bitcoin price versus value, tweeted on August 18th.
2: You know, I look at valuation. Most people look at price, especially when it comes to crypto. But valuation is where it's at right so uh crypto's value proposition is that there's an adoption curve it has bitcoin has a network and it's growing um and um and that provides a fundamental anchor just the way we have fundamental anchors in in the in the stock market and the bond market so My valuation metric for Bitcoin is very simply uh, the price divided by the number of addresses, non-zero addresses. And I call that the price to network ratio, which is the orange line. That orange line is back to 2014 levels. So compared, so in absolute terms, maybe Bitcoin is not cheap or maybe it is. That's the black line. But certainly relative to the size of its growing network, I think Bitcoin is cheap.
0: Finally, we'll look at Bitcoin supply and demand models tweeted in that same August 18th thread as the last slide.
2: Here you see Bitcoin's rising or growing network. So if you believe that Bitcoin has an adoption curve and that adoption curve is going to be up and to the right, maybe at various slopes, and I think the slope of that curve is where really the conversation's at. We are currently at a price where, even when I look at a more conservative um, model, which is the green line, we're below it. Um, and so, to me, you know, the, the question is, you know, does Bitcoin end up at fifty thousand or a hundred thousand or or what, whatever the number is? But based on the work I've done, um, it doesn't really belong at twenty thousand. It, it belongs at a level higher than that. And of course, we had this crypto winter. We had all of this leverage coming into the system and. It was hard to see, and then as as happens with every bear market, when the tide goes out, as Warren Buffett famously said, you 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 see who's been swimming naked. Um, and as the tide went out over the last six months, there were a lot of a lot of uh, a lot of a lot of damage being done, companies going under, hedge funds you know getting liquidated, all that kind of stuff. And so, to me. Um, when you see those headlines appear of companies you know of, of dead bodies you know f- floating in in the harbor, uh, that that's a pretty good time to be a buyer, especially against what you see in this chart, which is a fundamentally still constructive picture. So you know if if the green line or the purple line or the orange line says 50,000 and we're at a hundred thousand, well then Bitcoin's too expensive. It's done too much too soon. But yeah. if that line's at fifty thousand, and bitcoins at twenty thousand. To me, that's an opportunity, but that's just just my personal opinion.
1: Okay, we're thrilled to have you give all of your opinions, and thank you for sharing everything you have with us today. It's great to see you, and we'll nice see you see again you. next week here in Timur.
2: Great. Thank you, Pamela.
0: Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. You can visit fidelity.ca for more information on future live webcasts, and don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter. Thank you. See you next time.